Hi, welcome back to the Jewish Reaction. Uh, this is Rabbi Steve Berg, the International Director of NCSY, and I'm here with... Rabbi Yaakov Glasser, the Director of Education for NCSY. And we're very, very happy uh, that we have Rabbi Yaakov Glasser back here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, last week, um, he was off flying someplace, delayed, all kinds of stuff going on with weather-related problems, but uh, but you're back, right? I am back. We actually spent uh, two days in California doing extensive educator training for the staff of NCSY. It was, it was a remarkable experience. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, anyway, okay, we want to kind of cut into, uh, we have a bunch of topics we want to address uh, this week. Uh, a lot of stuff going on in the world around us. Um, obviously, the elections are over, um, which is uh, good and bad. I mean, uh, it's it's good because, you know, <laughs> there's all the noise and uncertainty. I don't think anyone really likes uncertainty. You know, we know who our elected officials are. We know who our president's going to be. We know for many of us, our congressmen and so many other elections. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, uh, Roy Glasser, you know, one of the things that I've uh, heard from people um, is there you know we're a little worried about the shakeup in Congress in terms of uh, people being pro-Israel or anti-Israel and stuff like that. Um, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that you know all of us you know when you go through a campaign and you listen to leaders make promises and you listen to leaders uh, you know really try to project a vision for the country and they're talking to different constituencies. There's always that concern in the back of your mind. Uh, you know, to what extent is the, are these the positions that they're really going to hold to when they get into office? To what extent is this part of just uh, swaying people to support them? Um, and I think I think all of us go through an election trying to try to discern, uh, you know, the the truth from passion and from um, you know all of the different media uh, spin on different issues and different candidates and these types of things. Uh, but I, I I do think one of the things that elections do bring out in our community are a focus on the issues in the United States that you know most most greatly impact our community, and it gives us a chance to really try to introspect and see and prioritize. You know what are the different elements of our community? What are our needs? What are our needs internationally? What are our needs domestically? And how do we get more involved in the process so that we can have those needs met? Yeah, you know, I got to tell you something. We we don't even think. Uh, we don't even really give it a, a second uh, thought uh, about uh, children and what they hear throughout the election process. I got to tell you, the, the next morning, and I, I happen to have not been sleeping at home the night of the election uh, because we had no power. As <laughs> many, many thousands of, of us around the, uh, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of us around the tri-state area did not have power after Hurricane Sandy. Uh, but we woke up in the morning, and uh, my seven-year-old woke up, Zevi, who's in second grade at Yeshiva, North Jersey, and uh, I told him, I said, oh, you know, uh, President Obama won the election. He's he's a new president. And he turned to me, and he looked at me, he said, oh, does that mean we now have health care? And... <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't think he knew what Obamacare was. I don't think, you know, he didn't know any details. But like, you know, but they hear stuff. They hear stuff as the election go on and, and adults talk about it and media talks about it and, and all the things happen. Um, you know, we have to, we have to kind of remember that. And I think it's important to talk to our children, um, regardless of the age, whether they be young or older, you know, kind of talk to them about the elections and explain the process and, and really, um, you know, involve them. I just, I thought that was a great moment. I mean, first of all, 
it gives, I know for teenagers, uh, elections and the whole climate of discussing issues and debating issues and being opinionated, it, it does give them a chance to kind of voice their thoughts, their ideas, uh, you know, independently. Uh, it's something that should be nurtured because, you know, it helps them in terms of thinking through, thinking things through for themselves as they develop as individuals. But I think one of the other aspects that, that you're alluding to that I, I think is incredibly important is the amount of cynicism that sometimes develops around election time, uh, both towards the electoral process and towards, you know, some of our leaders and towards our, our system in general. And that's very dangerous because, you know, our children, every generation that grows up in this country, you know, just takes it more and more for granted uh, that we have a voice and, and the whole notion that the, the commander-in-chief of the most, uh, you know, sophisticated military in the world is going to transfer power from one person to the other peacefully uh, is a remarkable thing in the history of the world and something that we shouldn't take for granted as a, as a community. And I think it's important that as we get passionate about the issues and as we certainly, you know, all feel strongly about who those leaders should be, that we uh, project a sense of, of a karsatov, of appreciation and gratitude uh, for the opportunities that we have to live in this country. I know that at our NCSY programs, uh, we distributed a letter that was written by Rav Moshe Feinstein about how important it is to vote in the elections. And one of the things that we told the kids is, you know, here's a man that grew up and, and really developed in, in communist Russia uh, with no rights and with no opportunities. He had to flee the country because they were trying to execute him and his family. And he understood what it meant to be able to build Torah and to build the Jewish community in, in a place of freedom. And there's nothing that brings out that, those values and those opportunities more than an election. Yeah, I, I I could not uh, I could not agree with you more. And I got to tell you something. Even let me take it a, a step further. One of the things I've been hearing from people, you know, I, as Jews, our issues are Israel. Our issues are um, the high cost of uh, of tuition and, and, and day schools and all those things. But over the last, uh, I would say, the two weeks uh, with Hurricane Sandy. Um, one of the things I've been hearing, and I experienced it, you know, we, we, in my, in my borough, in, uh, in town of Bergenfield, you know, at, on the end of my block, we hit some down wires, uh, and literally, we, we, we were calling, calling PSCNG, calling the township, calling everyone, calling everyone, and everyone's, oh, we're not sure, this, that, it, it was unbelievable amount of frustration. When they finally got there, it was like about a 10 minute fix. Um, and it was just so frustrating that I've heard so many people say, you know, we need a bigger say in, in our town, and or not, in our city um, to be represented because, you know, when these things happen, when disasters strike, you know, you don't think about it. When your garbage gets picked up and, and things are all going okay, you don't think about um, what what it takes to, to run a city or a borough or a township or any of these things. When things don't go wrong, that's a, that's when you start to get upset. Now, and, and you know, I wonder if after Hurricane Sandy we're really going to see a lot more uh, people, uh, Orthodox Jews, really take this seriously and get involved. Yeah, and, and they can, and we can. You know, I think uh, sometimes we just minimize how much influence and impact we can have. I, I remember sitting once in an Orthodox Union mission to Washington, and we were sitting in a room. I, I think we were there together, and there were just, you know, senator after senator after senator and, and you know, very people, you know, people very high up in the, in the government addressing the group. And I, I remember turning to the person next to me and saying to them, you know, you realize that most people who live in the United States of America, not only will they never meet, a senator. They'll probably never meet somebody who will meet a senator, you know, and here we are, like young guys sitting in this room in Washington, D.C., hearing from all these different people, and, you know, sometimes we take for granted the opportunities that we have uh, to have that voice.
And, you know, I want to make mention here, especially since we're on the Nachum Siegel Network, uh, that there was another show on the Nachum Siegel Network by someone by the name of Rivka Abbey. Um, and, and Rivka, who is a senior in Central, which is a terrific, terrific kid um, and, and at a terrific school. Uh, but when you, when I mentioned this a couple shows ago, when we were talking about the uh, the hundred um, kids that, that she brought to Washington, uh, and the fact that we were able to pick up a phone and, and get them booked into the White House, uh, you know, from what you're saying, just people being able to walk through, you know, that uh, those that layers and layers of security and and be in that place, um, it, it's just an amazing thing. And you know, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I think the kids really felt something special. But you're right. I think a lot of times we uh, we do take it for granted. You know, I could tell you that uh, I disclose. Um, to be uh, at the White House for uh, at a party for Jewish uh, Jewish Heritage Month, and uh, you know you walk in there, and this is really to Jared Bernstein, the uh, Jewish uh, liaison's uh, credit at the White House. You walk in there, and there is a washing station set up with bread, telling how motzi with a, a, a sheet next to it, a, a piece of poster board says, you know everything is Hasidish Shechita and Pas Yisrael, and you know it was all Fleischik. Otherwise, it would have been Chol Yisrael. But you know it was just. You know, you're just sitting here going, oh my gosh, you know, we have the history of being beat up and kicked out of every country in the world. Here we are in this country that not only are they letting us stay, not only are they treating us right, not only, you know, do we have the same rights as everyone else, but they're going out of their way to make sure that, that everyone is comfortable, so that there's Hasidish Shechita and there's this and that, you know, all these Chumras. Oh, like, you know, Kaddish Baruch Hu is like looking down at this thing. The Almighty is looking down and saying, you know, way to go. <laughs> Yeah, I think you've mentioned before in uh, previous shows, not not only in other countries, but even in the history of, of our own country, you know, uh, knowing that, uh, you know, as the Holocaust was beginning and, and Jewish leaders were trying to appeal to uh, politicians and to leaders in the United States government and they couldn't get access to them, uh, just sure. how far we've come in terms of organizing ourselves and being able to, to make a difference. Sure, there's a famous book called Abandonment of the Jews uh, by uh, Dr. Wyman, uh, which basically talks about that, about how Jews got the door slammed in their face, basically, and couldn't have um, access to government. And today in the White House, uh, the chief of staff, Jack Lew, um, is a Shomer Shabbos. <laughs> you know, is keep, keep Shabbos. Uh, you know, it's really... Uh, an amazing thing, you know, they, they put, they put kosher food in the White House mess because the chief of staff is, uh, is, is Makhbun and Kashras. You know, so just those types of things are, are just things that are just, I guess, overwhelming. And, you know, I say overwhelming, but they don't. And I think that's really what we're talking about here. You know, it's just, you get so used to it, you take it so for, for granted, you know, that, uh, you're like, this is just the way it, it, it always has been. You know, I think, what are we, a week away from Thanksgiving? Do the Bergs, do the Bergs celebrate Thanksgiving? The, uh, <laughs> we eat on Thanksgiving. We eat. Uh, you know, we, we certainly eat, but, uh, you know, do we celebrate it, you know? I don't know, I don't know if we're always mocking on turkey. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, look, I think it's, I think it's actually, I think it's an amazing day. It really is amazing that this country was able to say, look, we're taking a day. We came to this country. Um, and, and, and what the great story of America, which I've always loved, is that everyone 
pretty much came here from some other place, except for you know the Native Americans. Um, everyone else was basically fleeing. Yeah, that's not part of the great story of America. Right, that's not part <laughs> of the great story of America. But uh, but you know everyone was basically fleeing some type of persecution, something going on. You know, or even you know you look at the story. You know, you just had Mitt Romney run for uh, for president. You know, the, the story of the Mormons. You know, the Mormons are persecuted even within the United States um, at times. Um, but they, you know, everyone kind of eventually found their place. And the fact that we can all get together, like on a Thanksgiving, and say, "Okay, this is our day." Look, you know, people will say, as Jews, you know, we say modem every day, three times a day. That you know, we're always thankful, and, and that's true. But um, just as a secular state is able to say, "Okay, let's stop and just say thanks," um, to me is very moving. Yeah, um, I know that we in our family we we definitely get together and and take that opportunity, and and I, I agree, it really. Um, it, it, it's it it's part of what what makes this country uh, great, and it's part of what gives this gives us so much opportunity, and uh, it's it's certainly something we should we should treasure. My, the, well, the one min hug in the Berg family, which has been on and off again. I guess min hug him usually you're supposed to do every year, but it's an American min hug, so maybe it has a different din. But uh, the one min hug that that we we've gone on and off again, and, and my wife informed me last night we were going to be doing. Um, is going to see the balloons being blown up on Wednesday night in Manhattan for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And uh, for all of you that haven't seen it, haven't seen big shriveled up balloons be blown up into very, very large building size balloons, it's pretty cool. It's fair. We have the freedom to do that. You have the freedom to... No, seriously. I mean, like, you know, in, in oppressed countries, there are no balloons. <laughs> there are no balloons. <laughs> I, I, you know it's what? It's a beautiful I, thing. It's I got, a beautiful thing. I remember, you remember in California, where Berg, both you and I lived for a while in California. It wasn't the Rose Parade that we used to go Sure, watch. sure, sure, the Rose Parade. Uh, Thanksgiving, watch the flowers and the roses. Yeah, I, I honestly was about to say that I'm not often speechless, but, you know, when you start talking <laughs> about human rights and equating it with balloon... Um, <laughs> balloons. I, I'm I'm uh, at a loss. But anyway, I think we're gonna we're gonna actually wrap up here because we have a lot more uh, to go on the show. Um, but uh, look, the bottom line is that uh, through Election Day and through this country, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for, and uh, you know, it's something that we need to remember on a constant basis. Absolutely. Thank you so much for. Um, for commenting there at the end. I thought you were going to go back into your balloon spiel. Anyway, uh, thank you so much, and uh, we will be back soon. Hi, everybody. Steve Savitsky, and today we have a wonderful guest from your show, from, from Eretz Israel, uh, Rabbi Moshe Benevitz, who is the director of the NCSY Kolil, also a Rebbe in Rishi Yerushalayim, and a superb educator and an all-around terrific, terrific person who I know very well. And uh, Rabbi Benowitz, thank you for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the very kind words of introduction. And they were just, believe me, if I could have gone on for the full 20 minutes just talking about you, Rabbi Benowitz, it would have been easy to do. So, in the edition that we have coming up of the Jewish Action, which is going to be the summer of 2012, we, we actually delve into the whole issue of technology, social media, and so on, and you were kind enough to write an article, a really, really wonderful article about it, and um, I'm sure everyone who reads the Jewish Action is, is going to enjoy it. Uh, you know, reading it, I, I just had some questions. That First of all, let's talk about attention span. You're an educator. You've been an educator for a while. I mean, is it really a fact that today the kids just don't have the same attention span that kids had 10, 15, 20 years ago? 
From my experience, it certainly is the case. Uh, although it's spoken about very often, uh, which can certainly give the, um, you know, you're tempted to say that it's being overstated, but, but my sense is that it's not being overstated at all. Uh, there is a fundamental change, um, and I don't think it's anything new. I think it's something which has been accelerated, uh, but began with, uh, with other technological inv- uh, advancements uh, even 20, 30, 40 years ago. People's style of learning and obtaining information was different, uh, and certainly the Internet has exacerbated that, and the personal handheld, handheld devices for the Internet uh, even more so, uh, in the sense that people are not used to focusing on ideas or concepts for very long, and the fact that people assume that the information given to them is going to be uh, very easily digestible, that it's going to be readily apparent what it is that they're doing. The notion of working to uncover uh, nuggets of information or insight uh, is a little bit foreign. It's an unnatural way of learning uh, for many of our students uh, of this generation. But that's really going to change. I mean, you talk about Limud Kodesh, Limud Kodesh, you talk about learning Gemara. I mean, the whole essence of learning Gemara is to delve and to, and to dig and to, and to spend time and to understand. I mean, it sounds like, you know, we, we, we may have some serious problems down the road. Uh, I, there's no question it's an obstacle. And um, I think it needs to be confronted from, from two different perspectives. Number one, we're, we're dealing with good people. And we can make the case, and we need to make the case, for why that unnatural effort is worth it. Uh, and at the same time, we need to deal with the reality as it is uh, and maybe make some of the methods of teaching a little bit closer to what they're used to. I'm not suggesting a, a radical transformation either of curricula or of methods, uh, but again, but, but a recognition of what we're dealing with. One of the points that I made in the article is that as educators, uh, there's, there's this enormous responsibility that we have to recognize the realities on the ground, to understand the nature of the students, because we're, we're not speaking to blank walls, we're not speaking to tape recorders. Uh, we're, we're, we're speaking to people who are coming with their own uh, backgrounds and ideas and their approaches and their styles, and, and the better teachers and educators recognize that. Too often, though, we stop with that, and, and we're, we're content to be sociologists in the place of being educators. We don't get to choose the people that we educate. Those who do, from a particular narrow career perspective, uh, that's not even what I'm referring to, and that, that's few and far in between. Educators, and, and by which I mean in the greater sense of the word, community leaders and those who are building schools and institutions and models of learning, in addition to the men in the field and women in the field who are actually in the classroom, we don't get to choose who we educate and what they're bringing to the table. We have to find a way to educate them in exactly the way that they are. Uh, and I believe we can do that. And the way that we do that, like I said, is this two-pronged approach. Uh, number one, in recognizing that we have to make the case. Uh, we don't have a captive audience, and we need to make the case for Torah more than ever before. And number two, to come up with the methods uh, that allow us to uh, reach them in a way that they're more used to and is more natural to them. Well, isn't that, in a way, kind of rewriting some of the curriculum? I mean, the regular way of learning a black Gemara may not apply anymore. You may have to find another way of, of trying to achieve the same goal. Most effective 
change, first of all, is gradual, especially in the educational arena. Uh, could we get to the point where over a period of years, uh, a decade or two, things look radically different because of the accelerated changes of technology? I think it's possible, but, but I'm also relatively conservative when it comes to that. Uh, and I have a great deal of confidence in a lot of the tried and true methods. And that's why I think uh, more subtle shifts can be effective. I'll give you a great example. Okay. It occurred to me not long ago that, um, and again, this is something which is far from radical, but uh, it occurred to me not long ago that the, that some of the challenges uh, that educators have had in the past in teaching Gemara, its own lack of internal focus, the fact that Gemara jumps all over the place, the fact that pages are so busy, well, isn't it true that, that a page of Gemara uh, looks rather similar to, to a website where there are different places, almost, we don't have, unless you're holding a Schottenstein uh, iPad Talmud in your hand, uh, generally speaking, our students of today are not going to have the ability to actually click on a word and have a Tosos jump out at them, but the makeup of the page, which was so challenging before, may be something which speaks to our students a little bit more. To jump to a Tosos, to be able to construct a Gemara Shear uh, that's built on shorter attention spans, a line, and then a sidetrack point in Tosos, and then maybe hitting refresh or, or going back a page to where we were before in the Gemara, uh, there could be things that were challenging 20 years ago that are, in fact, a little bit easier. Meaning I think we have the capacity to, to construct our lessons and our teaching of even Adaf Gemara in ways that, that go very nicely uh, with the mindsets of our students. But the attention spans, like you said, there's no question of the challenge. But what you're saying is, in other words, it's really a reformatting of the Tzuras Hadaf, the way we know it for centuries, you know, we may have to change that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the, you know, the Schattenstein, you know, the iPad. And, you know, we're sitting here now with, uh, it's uh, just a few weeks before the CMA Shas. And uh, we know this is going to be a new new thing that's going to be unveiled at the CMA Shas. And I think it may change completely the way, you know, just the way Sansino changed and, and Schattenstein changed. And, and now the Internet. I mean, I, this could be a game changer as far as how people learn Gemara. I think it could be, and I'm not sure that that's a bad thing, but I, I would like to see, and I think it's realistic to see, uh, it, it bringing us back to a an appreciation and understanding of the pages themselves. I don't think it needs to replace. I think it could be a tool we use to make the tried and true more accessible. And I think that's a very healthy direction to go in, uh, and and not an altogether unfeasible one. I think that's a, um, that's a realistic possibility of how things could emerge. And I think what they've done successfully, but I think a teacher can do this with or without a smart board in his own sheer of a traditional blockchain year of, like I said, you recognize the attention spans. I mean, again, you know, it, it seems at times, and again, it, it's more an illusion than reality, but it seems at times that Gemara was written uh, by people with short attention spans. The way in which the tangents pop up on a page, the way in which we have to think, what were we talking about in the first place? And of course, there's a rhyme and a reason to the organization of Gemara, but that's something that could be utilized uh, in, in teaching that, that will work well. The original point that we started with, with the fact that Gemara uh, pertains uh, it contains truths that need to be uncovered and require patience, and there's no question that's, that's a bigger challenge because there's no art scroll or iPad in the world that's going to do that. And that's why I mentioned we need to make the case for why that effort is worthwhile and why it's, it's okay to be reprogrammed a little bit in the way that we think. But it's a challenge. But you, you mentioned in the article, uh, you, you say, we simply need educators who are up to the task of offering what no game, movie clip, or instant message can deliver the thrill and deep satisfaction of connection to Torah 
on its own most sublime level. How do we get those people? They have to believe it themselves first and foremost. Uh, it becomes a, a self-sustaining uh, system. The more people that believe that themselves, the more people amongst educators, I, I'll tell you honestly, I believe we have amongst many educators not a crisis of competency but a crisis of confidence. Uh, they themselves are, are wowed and amazed by all of the other uh, both educational and technological uh, advancements and all of the ideas that are out there. Uh, and they themselves need, need to be confident in what they're doing on a practical level. In addition to recruiting and training better teachers uh, when they're young, it involves in-services and, and master teachers being involved and giving confidence to teachers. There are a lot of teachers out there that lack the confidence even in the material that they're doing. And sometimes, and it relates back to the point we were discussing a minute ago, uh, sometimes I believe that when you have uh, educators that are bemoaning advances in technology and their students' lack of attention and interest in the material, um, they're, they're talking about their their own crisis of confidence in that material sometimes as well. Uh, and we need to give support to those teachers, and we need to educate our students so that they can become the teachers that have the confidence in the eternal truth and relevance of what they're teaching to be able to give that over. Uh, but uh, but, but it's, it's, it's a doable mission. Okay, but now I want to just kind of go to perhaps a different aspect of the article, and you talk about the year in Israel. And you say, yeah. today, a student can spend a year without a significant adjustment to a social circle, entertainment choices, a cultural framework. So has, is the year in Israel still so important? Or because of all these changes, perhaps it's not as crucial as it was or not as meaningful as it was? Well, I, I think we'd have to rephrase the question a bit because it, I don't have any hesitation in answering that it's as crucial as ever, uh, but it's difficult to reap the rewards and benefits of the year of Israel. It's a lot easier for it to be unproductive. I don't think that makes it any less crucial. It just means that having a successful experience with it is all the more challenging. Uh, I think the percentage, and there always were people who had more and less productive experiences uh, in the year in Israel, uh, but my sense and it's a strong sense, and it's not, not merely anecdotal, is that the number of people who are using the year unproductively, and that doesn't have to mean out on the streets and bars or, or being involved in illegal activities, uh, just using the year unproductively, uh, is, is rising and, and is rising in, in a frighteningly steady way. Uh, again, I don't think that makes the year any less important uh, because it's, uh, it's, 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 it's equally unfortunate uh, than it ever was before that it happened. In fact, the year of Israel, one could argue, is, is even more important. Um, but, uh, but we have to deal with the realities that are there. The realities that are there that students in Israel, one of the secrets to success, and there was more than one, of the year in Israel uh, 20 years ago was that you had a captive audience with, with very, very few alternatives of what to do with their time. Uh, and you had an audience that was simply taken out of uh, the milieu that they had grown up in, both socially, culturally, educationally, and was by definition entering something new. And, and, and in the excerpt you quoted from the article, uh, I'm stating quite clearly that that is simply not the case. The circle of friends does not change. The education doesn't change. It's as important as ever, but it's harder to reap the benefits. There's no question about it. All right. Now, you know, in, in light of uh, the recent Asifa that occurred, where, where it seems that there is a component in the Orthodox Jewish world that says the only way that we can survive is to really filter this out or even eliminate it or pretend that it's not there, 
because we've got to build these very high walls. And you seem clearly in the camp that says we can and should embrace their potential and direct the momentum they generate towards Torah goals and ideals. I, I presume you don't necessarily agree, uh, nor do I, by the way, but I presume you don't necessarily agree with that philosophy of where we are today. I, I, that's correct, uh, but I say that with a fair amount of reluctance. I, I, I understand the alternative point of view uh, and where they're coming from. There's a part of me that's tempted to say, let's build the world's walls higher and try to keep this out because uh, it, it's just a losing battle any other way. Uh, but um, but I, A, I don't think it's realistic, and B, I think we will be turning our back on great potential good. I used in the article, uh, at least alluded to, uh, an example of the fact that, that just an intellectual curiosity and a fact-checking mechanism uh, that students have access to, the way they process and evaluate information, although not 100% reliable in its own right, I don't think we should be overly cynical, though, about the tools available to our students that, that are second nature to them on the Internet. And I think that a failure to embrace those tools uh, is going to cause us tremendous difficulties. The fact that statements that were made by, by their rabbis in high schools in the year in Israel and university uh, 20, 30 years ago could go unchallenged, and a charismatic, emphatic uh, educator could make a statement, and, and you have no choice but to shrug your shoulder and accept it. That's not the reality that our students have anymore. Uh, and we have to find ways to say, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's lay it out there. Let's pursue truth. Let's make statements, and then let's challenge them and, and use the wealth of information and the Internet out there uh, to see uh, if those arguments hold water. In the Kiev community, for example, they're coming to grips with the fact that some of the arguments, historical arguments, philosophical arguments that, like I said, a charismatic educator could tell a person off the street and who would know better is checked instantly on a, on a, on a, on a handheld device that's pulled out of a pocket. And if those arguments, uh, you know, do not hold water, uh, then we've done more damage than good. But we need to adjust to that, and we should adjust to that. Do you have an example of that? I'm just curious. If you don't, it's okay, but I, I'm curious what you mean by that. I think there are examples, uh, and again, this is probably beyond the scope of, of this limited discussion because there are obviously complexities and, and layers here. But examples like, like uh, mass revelation at Sinai being the only way possible when you have uh, challenges from, from other um, uh, sources and the fact that Torah seems to have been forgotten uh, in certain periods explicitly in the Navi and the like, and that the chain of the Mesorah uh, was not clearly, uh, there is certainly reason to believe that there were times where it was, if not broken, uh, but that it was down to a precious few, uh, that, that, that's a challenge to, just to use one example, that mass revelation uh, argument of sorts. In the scientific realm, in the archaeological realm, uh, we, we need to be able to know that there is information at the fingertips of our students that, of course, we have answers to, and of course, we have ways of responding to, uh, but to just throw arguments out there, uh, they're not going to, nor should they, simply accept the face value. Okay, okay, good, no. I think I think that's great, and I like the way you put in the article how you say instead of putting away your iPhones, take out your iPhones, and now let's verify certain information. Let's utilize the technology today to integrate learning and Torah that they kind of coexist together. And uh, you know we could we have to find ways because I, I think as you say you know we've got to be practical about this also. I mean today you know in your handheld device you've got more information than anyone ever had before in the history of mankind. 
and how could you expect people not to have it? So they will, especially as the, as the prices go down and more accessible. How could we expect, right. you know, a year from now or two years or three years from, from now that, that, it, will, that sure. it won't work? So we've got to integrate it, and we've got to find the right teachers who perhaps have to be retrained. We have to modify some of our educational philosophy, and, and we have to uh, deal with this as a tool that strengthens Torah as opposed to compromises Torah. That's where we are uh-huh. today. And yeah, uh, you right. know, and, and I think I think that's great. I think that's really the message that you're really coming across with, which is which is really a, a wonderful, wonderful message. So you're you're optimistic. I mean, I know you're always optimistic, because I know you. So you're always optimistic, but you're optimistic that once again we'll uh, we'll rise to the challenge. We'll find a way to to deal with this and, and integrate it into our world. Torah will rise to the challenge. We just have to let it. We have to find ways to let it uh, impact on our students. We want our Rabbanim and we want the Torah to be the ultimate filter, for it to be the way in which we process ideas. And we have to earn the credibility with our students for it to do that, with more honesty, with a little bit more openness, and with a full understanding of where they're coming from and what they're dealing with. Terrific. Well, listen, Rabbi Benowitz, I want to thank you so much. I want to encourage everyone to read Rabbi Benowitz's article in the uh, summer edition of 2012 of the Jewish Action. And uh, thank you for your thoughts, and, uh, and I really appreciate them very much. And have a wonderful day. Thanks for having me. We're back with the uh, Jewish Reaction. My name is Rabbi Steve Berg, uh, the International Director of NCSY. And I'm Rabbi Yaakov Glasser, the Educational Director of NCSY. And we are here uh, today... Uh, on the uh, Nachum Siegel Network, and we wanted to, I don't know how many people have been following, uh, Rabbi Glasser this past weekend. You know, it's really amazing. You know, you, you know, we talk about getting used to things. This past weekend, uh, there were 160 rockets were fired from Gaza into Israel. Yeah, it, it is, it is incredible, and I, and I think part of what went on over the last couple of weeks is we've all been so focused on the, the devastation, uh, from the hurricane here on the East Coast that we've been a little distracted, but, uh, what the situation in Israel has certainly been brewing over the last week or so, and, and certainly has come to a head over this past weekend. And, uh, you know, apparently there was, uh, Israel, uh, retaliated and uh, assassinated the commander of the military wing of Hamas, a man by the name of Ahmad Jabari. And, uh, you know, it's it's escalating, and it's, it's, it's a scary thing. You know, and what's amazing to me as I'm watching the news reports fly around is, of course, the second Israel struck back and, and went after someone who was a terrorist, someone who was responsible for many, uh, many, many uh, killings. And, and, and by the way, interesting, interestingly, he was uh, responsible for the kidnapping of uh, Gilad Shalit, uh, among uh, Jabari's, um, you know, long, long list crime sheet. Um, but, you know, Israel's sitting there taking rocket after rocket after rocket after rocket. They finally do something and everyone, everyone jumps up. It's just, it's really terrible. Yeah, I think uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, was saying earlier today that uh, there, there's no other country that would permit this type of assault on its citizens and allow it to reach the threshold that we tolerate before responding. And, you know, just sort of imagining, you know, America, you know, citizens of the United States being attacked in this sort of way, and the amount of restraint that Israel shows at, at great detriment uh, to its citizens and to, you know, um, its institutions. And uh, then at a certain point, it, there's a need to push back and, and to watch the, the, equi- the equivocation that comes uh, from the world's uh, reaction and to watch, you know, the, the moral indignation that comes. It's, it's, it's very 
troubling, but you know, unfortunately, it's it's a storyline that we know well. And and you know, what makes me a little bit nervous here is you know it's one thing to have rockets versus uh, you know airplane missile attacks and, and back and forth. I'm very worried that this will lead to a ground war where they have to actually go into Gaza because frankly, it's it just you know. Uh, <laughs> It's becoming almost impossible to turn it off, and that that's when we we start saying major to Hillam for our boys. Yeah, and when we know that uh, when they did have to do operations like that in the past, it was it was not without uh, a very deep cost, um, and and a hundred percent. I mean, it's something that we re- we really need to be focused on, and we need need to be in terms of tefillah, in terms of just awareness of what's going on, in terms of uh, just within our own communities, making sure that uh, our own officials know uh, that this is a big priority for us. Right. And uh, there were reports that thousands of angry Gazans were chanting retaliation, and we want you to hit Tel Aviv tonight. Um, so, and that's what's scary. That it's you know, it's one thing if it's some fringe people just throwing up rockets, but uh, uh, a very, very, very sad situation there. And then look, we're going to monitor it, and we're going to daven and say tefillos, and, and hopefully um, we'll be able to to get to uh, to a peaceful uh, solution there. Certainly. I mean, look, one of the things, whenever these, these types of escalations come up, you just look at the overall situation, and it, it's so clear that from a natural perspective, uh, these are just such irreconcilable um, differences and, and in terms of the situation. And it, it just really motivates us to point ourselves towards really the only source of, of resolving this and, and restoring real peace. Um, and, and enduring peace uh, to that part of the world is 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 Mashiach. Um, yeah, and you know what? I, I I don't know how to segue this exactly, although it's all military. But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about um, is what's been going on this week with General uh, Petraeus. Um, now, admittedly, uh, I ju- I'll just say here, disclaimer: I, I'm a huge General Petraeus fan. Um, I got an email from one of our political uh, folks here at the OU uh, reminding me that I had predicted in 2016 uh, that he would be an, a phenomenal vice presidential candidate um, to run on the ticket because of all his experience and what he's accomplished. Um, obviously, that's not going to happen. Uh, but, you know, were you – I mean, I, I was shocked out of my uh, – just shocked out of my seat. I mean, what were your thoughts? I, I I was absolutely shocked. Um, I think any time these things happen and and leaders are sort of exposed in this kind of way, especially when it's uh, you know regarding this type of you know moral behavior, you know there, there are always two thoughts that that go through your head. One is the more personal aspect, you know, just how the humiliation for his wife and his family. And um, how, you know, just even the, the smallest, I mean, in this case, certainly a very dramatic decision, but, you know, just to be so careful um, out there in the world in terms of, and I would really bring this out as a, as a practical, I'm not sure if people are going to focus on this, but I would bring this out as a very practical um, lesson to be learned from this. The, the importance of creating boundaries in, in the workplace and in our um, outside environment and that, uh, you know, no one is immune or, um, you you know, from things that could come up and relationships that could develop and how important it is and, and how our Chazal um, have 
really instituted so many of those boundaries between uh, Hilchas Yichud and other halachos that try to make sure that the genders can work alongside each other and together in the workplace, uh, but with a real uh, sense of what's at stake in terms of making sure that those uh, you know, boundaries of, of sanctity for family and for morality are maintained. And I think that is one very important lesson to walk away from it for everyone. Um, I think beyond that, you know, it's this is this is one of the very you know troubling aspects that when when we have leaders that have just had such remarkable accomplishments. I mean, you look at what this this individual has accomplished in terms of his military career, in terms of, of heading you know an organization like the CIA, and how all of that could really disappear. Um, really just in, in a moment uh, because of, of this type of indiscretion. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, like, why, like, why would he risk all of this uh, for something like that? And, and I think to a certain extent that just sort of brings out the human fallibility that uh, exists in all of us. Um, and uh, sometimes we like to believe that our heroes and our leaders are infallible. Um, and, you know, impenetrable and, and unassailable. But, you know, one of the things we learn from these types of situations is that, uh, you know, ca- caution all around. Yep, caution all around. And, you know, what was also kind of, to me, amazing was just the, the role of email in this whole thing. Um, and, and I find that people will write things in email or in text or in other things that they would not necessarily say or do otherwise or, you know, it almost gives you, um, I don't even know what it is, like passing notes in class, you know, um, and and it's really just, just terrible. And I guess, you know, one of the things I always think about and you hear people talk about it all the time is, is the role of role models, you know, um, you know, people... You know, do people that are in, in high profile, and they know they're high profile, and, and, and they're, they're, they're ambitious people that want a certain place. Where does the responsibility begin and end? You know, do you say, look, the guy was a general. It's really, not, frankly, none of our business. The guy did, you know, acted like a, a, a really terrible person on the side, you know. And by the way, this, this, you know, forget General Petraeus for a second, rather Glasser, but, you know, this comes up many times with, with sports, uh, heroes. Um, you know, when there's certain sports heroes that say, look, I'm not a role model. I never asked to be a role model. Don't want to be a role model. But on the other flip side is they take millions of dollars, uh, being in a place and the people that put them there are, are, you know, the, the young people. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think certain people are role models because of the positions they hold and certain people are role models because it's just inevitable that, you know, like I, I know, I'm sure you struggle with this. You know, I, I have a son who's very, very into sports and he's constantly, uh, you know, reading, you know, all sorts of biographies and all these things. And I struggle with it a lot because the biographies sort of paint a picture of the lives of these people beyond just their, you know, athletic accomplishments. And I don't know that uh, all of them live lives that are, are things we should emulate and things we want our children to to understand and to learn from. But I think that even even role models in positions, you know, like generals, I, I think what, what it gets to is an overall question of judgment. And I think that's what really makes people concerned and nervous. Uh, not so much that it's impossible to be a great general and also uh, succumb to infidelity, but that the underlying judgments that he made um, that ultimately led to those 
very compromising situations reveal, you know, certain flaws in character that would ultimately emerge in other contexts as well. You're saying he was irresponsible, if I could sum that up. (laughs) if If he was irresponsible like this, he could be irresponsible at leading, leading a war, um, that's, yeah, uh, I mean, I, you know, think about point. one of the issues that's come up is, you know, uh, you know, you, you get involved in a situation where, where you compromise your family like that, and and the leverage that the individual has over you, um, you know, in that scenario is very dangerous. This person's running. I mean, this is out of a movie. You know, the person's running the CIA, and now an individual out there has information on them that could destroy, you know, that which is most precious to them. I mean, that that is that is dangerous for the country. That does make that does make the individual a less effective, in my opinion, you know, um, you know, director of a of a intelligence agency. And uh, I, I think that that's I think that's definitely something to take into account. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, it really, really is. Um, but, uh, you know, look, I, we have this. I, I was thinking, you know, it's funny, like in my mind, I'm like, do we talk about that, 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 that situation? But there's so many situations. But I guess, you know what? This is a little bit um, the Jewish Orthodox approach has uh, been with great rabbis, with Gedolim. You know, you know, the, 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 for us, if Toho is not Kaboro, if inside is not like the outside, you know, then it's it's worthless to us, you know. And I guess that's coming from our background. I guess that's what really throws me. I mean, to be a great rabbi, you know. They say, you know, to be to be a guttle, you know, when you're in your sixties, you're just hitting your stride. You know, so they're just right. considering you for the club. Um, and then, you know, I'm reminded there's a Gemara in Brachos that talks about a, a coin. I think it was a coin guttle who was 80 years old and he became a Tzidduki. And the point was that even, you know, till like literally you're dead in the grave, you can't ever think that you're okay and, you know, you won't have any hashkafic problems. But that's really true that our Gedolim are much, much older because you don't know what happens along the way. Um, and you want to see a person that's not only in a certain spiritual place, but that they've... They've run into the, the mountains and the molehills of life, and they've come out unscathed in their amuna. That's the person that we want to spend time with. Yeah, I think one of the, the remarkable things that you bring up our leaders, um, certainly that's true, that in our world we look for Toho Kaboro, and to us, um, you know, leadership is not just about brilliance and strategy and politics. It's about integrity and sincerity. Um, but I think the other thing is you look through Tanakh and you also see that the Tanakh is not afraid to share some of the challenges that our leaders have had and some of the mistakes that they've made uh, so that we understand two things. First of all, that even leaders are human and they can succumb. And that I think both the leaders themselves and those following them uh, don't become so intoxicated with their charisma and accomplishments and larger-than-life personalities that they don't think that they're susceptible uh, to temptation and and to things going wrong. And, you know, when we talk about the Malchus, you know, I've heard you speak about this many times at Shabbatonim, uh, the Malchus Yisrael comes from Yehuda, and, and the Mephoshim say it's because Yehuda was prepared to take responsibility uh, for mistakes, to take responsibility for things that, that went wrong. And I think that that, that says a lot in terms of what our conception of leadership is. We are looking for people with integrity and with morality who are real, uh, but we were also looking to people who are not, you know, so full of their accomplishments, uh, even in those arenas, that they, you know, don't recognize that there there are moments that they could too could succumb. Yep, I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely correct, and uh, 
And look, it's important to be mechanic our kids, to teach our kids that this is this is really what they need to be looking at. And look, that's the I don't know, say the danger is the wrong word. That's not the word I actually you know mean to use or want to use. But um, you know, when they just pick up the paper every day and they're reading about these scandals and this and that, all this stuff, it's just it. it you know what it does? <laughs> and this will bring us back to almost every other show we've done. Uh, it, it, that's what breeds the cynic, cynicism and sarcasm. You know, right. when you, you see someone, General Petraeus, who I got to tell you something, you know, I don't know if I've ever had this conversation with my kids, but my kids asked me, you know, who's a guy that we should emulate as just a, you know, a great person who come. I would have said General Petraeus to last week. Right. Um, and, you know, and that's, and then, you know, if, if it happens, you know, the citizens are kind of, if it happens to a guy like him, what chance do I got, you know, in trying to be a straight person that can accomplish things for the Jewish people? Yeah, and I think uh, that's that's look. That's a great question, and I think uh, I think the lesson for all of us is that we can accomplish great things for the Jewish people. We just have to maintain that moral compass and never, ever become complacent with the uh, amount of energy it takes to keep ourselves focused on doing what's right, and not to think that that all always happens automatically. It, you know, you do what's right in the world and in organizations because you choose to and because you focus on it, and, and that's why you have mentors, and that's why you have friends, and that's why you have people that, that check your behavior, and you don't just uh, do what you want. And I think that that's, um, I think that's a huge lesson. You know, my wife says, said to me the other day, you know, there are certain, there are certain weeks where the news is just so full of certain stories. Like, you know, you, you can't keep it on during carpool, and this is like one of those weeks because, you know, the, the press is obviously all over this. And uh, it's true. It's true. There are certain things that would be better off our children didn't know. Uh, but I think it's also important that they realize what, uh, what there is to learn when, uh, when, when leaders fall. And, and it's also important that, especially when you're talking to teenagers, that, that they understand that people are complex and that, uh, you know, when somebody does something bad and wrong, even if it's really bad, um, that doesn't mean every fiber and aspect of them is bad. It doesn't mean everything they've ever done is bad. It doesn't mean everything they ever will do is bad. Uh, people are complex. And, um, you know, there are many different factors and many different, we can't imagine the, the pressures that these types of positions are under, being responsible for tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands, millions of lives, the United States military. And that certainly doesn't excuse anything, but it, it does, you know, it, it, it does help us put it into perspective that as we grow in our own uh, leadership capacity, that, that we need to focus. Yep. And uh, that really wraps it up for today. Um, I want to thank Rabbi Glasser for being here with us and not being on a plane. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it much more than the uh, the flight into the snowstorm last week. So thank you again for joining us on the Jewish Reaction, which is on the Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, we will speak to you next week. Thank you so much.